Coming up on this episode of a New York Minute in History, we'll examine how two New Yorkers influenced the progressive era and modern day politics. We offer one who has the will to win, who not only deserves success, but commands it. Victory is his habit. The happy warrior, Alfred E. Smith. Franklin Roosevelt and Al Smith. Two governors, one a president, the other a presidential hopeful, and both New Yorkers. We'll look at how these two men from vastly different backgrounds fostered a friendship that transformed the role of government in American society. Al Smith, FDR, and the Progressive Era, coming up on A New York Minute in History. Support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. It's a great time for canals. We've been celebrating the bicentennial period of the Erie Canal, and last year marked the 100th anniversary of the Barge Canal. Now, with all that excitement, the Pomeroy Foundation has launched a new nationwide signage program to commemorate the history of transportation canals. Markers will be placed at existing or former canal sites all the way across the United States. To apply for a canal marker at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman, a New Yorker and explorer of all things history. The basis of this podcast is the New York State Museum in the state's capital of Albany. Established in 1836, it is the country's oldest and largest state museum. Within its walls, there are roughly one million cultural objects and more than 16 million scientific specimens. All which help tell the remarkable story of New York and its citizens. The Empire State is a special place, and it can be argued its history is essential when telling the story of the United States of America. We hope to make that case through this podcast, A New York Minute in History. And by my side on this journey, to answer my questions and yours alike, is the historian for the entire state of New York. So, Devin, what is it about New York and New Yorkers that makes what happened within these 54,555 square miles so unique? Well, Don, to answer that, I would paraphrase Columbia University's eminent historian, Kenneth Jackson, and say, but it happened in New York. From the Iroquois Confederacy, through European contact, from the Dutch Fort Orange, through New York's explosion of immigration and diversity, New York's history touches on all the major themes of America's history. Election days come and go, but political and social revolutions that attempt to transform our society never end. They continue every day, every week, and every month in the fight to create a nation and world of social and economic justice. I'm calling it the ultra-millionaires tax, and it just applies to that tippy-top one-tenth of one percent, those with net worth above $50 million. It would make the ultra-rich pay their fair share and generate nearly $3 trillion over the next 10 years. You know, that's money we can invest in rebuilding America's middle class, in universal childcare, in college debt forgiveness, in a Green New Deal to fight our climate crisis. 
What the Bronx and Queens needs is Medicare for all, tuition-free public college, a federal jobs guarantee, and criminal justice reform. We can do it now. It doesn't take 100 years to do this. It takes political courage. A New York for the many is possible. Those are the voices of what many consider to be today's leading progressives. The role of government in people's lives, laws and regulations, the constant tug of war over personal freedom versus the collective good, these are staples of American politics going back to the founding of the nation. And today, the debate rages on. Here in the United States, we are alarmed by the new calls to adopt socialism in our country. America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. Progressivism is certainly a buzzword in the current political scene. But true progressive government and government reform has been around a long time. And as with many things, its modern origins can be traced to New York State especially to the turn of the 20th century. The Progressive Era, a period commonly defined as lasting from 1890 to 1920. And nationally, the 1920s was a time when the free market style of government retrenched. So that made what was happening in New York State truly unique. Exactly. And for our purposes, being a podcast on New York State history, it involves influential politicians who would take their work in the Empire State to the national stage. It can be argued that the Progressive Era really began in New York with two children of the Empire State from very different backgrounds. We offer one who has the will to win, who not only deserves success, but commands it. Victory is his habit. The happy warrior, Alfred So I recognize that voice. It's that of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Bingo. And while FDR's cousin, President Theodore Roosevelt, is often noted as a progressive and a leading figure of that era, for the sake of this episode, we're going to focus on the younger member of the Roosevelt family. Okay, so going back to what FDR said, who is this so-called happy warrior? Well, here are the basics. Alfred Emanuel Smith was born on October 30, 1873, in New York City. The descendant of Italian and Irish immigrants, he was raised on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where he would watch the Brooklyn Bridge being built. He wasn't poor, but he was hardly well off. Uh, But, you know, he grew up in the Gilded Age New York. He, as a child, saw the inequities of... uh, of what the Gilded Age meant in New York in the uh, 1870s and 80s. One of his formative experiences uh, comes at the age of 13 when his father dies. He feels forced to leave grammar school 
uh, two months before his graduation to go out and help his mother and his younger sister uh, to work. Dr. Terry Galway is a senior editor at Politico, where he covers New York State politics. He's also a historian and the author of the new book, Frank and Al, FDR, Al Smith, and the Unlikely Alliance that Created the Modern Democratic Party, a dual political biography of Al Smith and FDR. You'll hear his take on Smith and Roosevelt throughout this episode. So there's a building in Albany named after Al Smith, right? Yes, the Alfred E. Smith building. There you go. Here we'll bring in Dr. Robert Childs, the author of The Revolution of 28, Al Smith, American Progressivism, and the Coming of the New Deal. We attended his talk on Al Smith at last year's Research in New York conference. He detailed how Al Smith dropped out of school after the eighth grade and went to work as a boy to support his family. And started working 12-hour shifts that started at four in the morning at the Fulton Fish Market. He would later remark famously that his only academic degree was an FFM standing for the Fulton Fish Market. Along with hard work and grim poverty and the church, the other universal element from Smith and many of his neighbors uh, was Tammany Hall, and he worked his way up through the Tammany machine. Uh, he got in good with local saloon keeper and wheeler dealer Tom Foley, as well as silent Charlie Murphy. The Tammany Hall political machine. Outside of the history books, people might know this organization from the movie Gangs of New York. Now, from where I stand, the term political machine doesn't exactly represent a bastion of progressive ideals. Instead, it's all corruption and dirty tricks. That's a fair perception, and often the general thinking among many people today. But for a lot of people in urban America at the turn of the 20th century, political machines were the modern-day equivalent of social safety nets, where none other existed. We have to remember that very few, if any, government programs were around at this time. I mean, if you were a family like Al Smith's, and you suffered some sort of catastrophe, whether it was the breadwinner dying or disappearing, you were on your own, right? You had nowhere to go. That's why you saw the rise, uh, or the uh, more than the rise, of, of the great urban machines like Tammany Hall, because there was no place to turn except to your local ward healer. But uh, you were on your own, right? Laissez-faire, free market, uh, rugged individualism, Right? I mean, American society is very much governed by those principles that, uh, and, and, you know, these certain uh, mythologies. You know, if you work hard, uh, you will succeed. Right? That's all that's needed. You just have to work hard. Well, that sounds familiar. People um, were working very hard uh, in industrializing America of the Gilded Age and the early 20th century, and uh, many of them were dying, you know, uh, at young ages because of the work they did. Uh, but if you got injured in, in, in your job, again, you were on your own. You know, the idea of workers' compensation uh, wasn't around in 1890. And it was very much uh, a, a society of individuals um, who uh, would, you know, again, were, were on their own. If anything bad happened and if anything good happened, <laughs> they, you know, certainly weren't expected to share the wealth in terms of, an, say, an income tax, which, of course, didn't exist at the time. No government regulation, no safety nets, no income tax. It's a libertarian's dream, but not so great for the average worker or their family. So how did Tammany Hall fill this void? Well, uh, Tammany Hall, like any good machine, uh, because they were the biggest and arguably the best 
you want to use that phrase, uh, had people everywhere, right? They had block captains. They had people in a large apartment building. Uh, they had uh, representatives everywhere, uh, many of them doing it as uh, party workers today do it, as sort of volunteers, and they, where they see uh, some volunteer work or work for the party being a way to take a step up. But they, they had their people everywhere. And uh, they had clubhouses in every neighborhood in Manhattan. Uh, one still exists, the McManus Club in Hell's Kitchen, the last sort of remnant of Tammany Hall, last Tammany political clubhouse. But they used to be everywhere. And uh, as a result, people knew who their district captain was. They knew who maybe their building representative was. And they understood that if they got into trouble, that these were people who were willing to help. Now, was it a transaction? Of course it was. <laughs> they, they went to this district captain, the most famous, I think, uh, Tammany boss, a guy by the name of Charles Francis Murphy, who comes into power in 1902 and stays in power until 1924 as the boss of Tammany Hall. He, as district leader in the, on the east side of Manhattan, where Stuyvesant Town and the Peter Cooper Village are now, uh, he would stand outside his tavern, uh, on 20th Street and 2nd Avenue, uh, underneath a lamppost, every night between 7 and 9 o'clock. I'm not sure that he actually was out there during a blizzard or during a very bad rainstorm, but it was known that he was out there. And if you got into trouble, if your son was arrested, perhaps unjustly, if your uh, parents suffered some sort of catastrophic health problem, and you needed something, you needed a job, you needed whatever it was you needed, you knew that Charlie Murphy was under the lamppost on 2nd Avenue and 20th Street, and you went and he tried to hook you up with people who could help you. Uh, it was informal. Uh, many people felt it was corrupt uh, because the, you know, the, the, the other part of the equation was Charlie Murphy expected you to show up on the polling booth in November in return for giving assistance. Uh, but, but that's how it worked. Tammany's district leaders and, and ward healers were the connection, the lifeline in many cases, between a family in distress and assistance of some sort. And so it's through his connections with Tammany Hall that Al Smith gets elected to the New York State Assembly and finds himself in Albany in 1903. As a Democrat in the minority, he learns how state government works. He studies the bills, pouring over pages upon pages of legislation. In 1910, the Democrats won. They won control of the state legislature. And so Charlie Murphy decided to hitch Tammany's future to his young, rising progressive stars. Al Smith was made assembly majority leader. And Robert F. Wagner, Smith's best friend, a German immigrant, uh, was made uh, majority leader of the Senate. And a couple of months later, as probably everyone in this room knows, a terrible event occurred. The Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, March 25th, 1911, swept through this sweatshop, killed 146 mostly young immigrant girls and young women, uh, mostly Jewish immigrants, some Italian immigrants. And this, of course, upset people all around the state, but it's Tammany's problem because they're in charge of the state legislature now. The fire uh, might have just been a, a terrible tragedy, but for the activism, that it inspired. Uh, unions, ordinary citizens who lost their children, uh, 
came together and created a movement as a result of this fire. The funerals themselves were almost uh, public events uh, as activists, you know, began to uh, understand the power of public performance, right? And uh, there were demonstrations uh, near Union Square in Manhattan, and uh, there were meetings, uh, both uh, from the workers' perspective, but also sort of the, the civic-minded people of Manhattan also decided that this was enough. You know, once they learned all of the, um, the way that this tragedy could have been prevented, which is very simple, you, know, you need more regulation, right? You need people to, to inspect fire escapes. You need to have legislation that, that uh, requires people to put in sprinklers. It doesn't matter that it's private property. Government has a role in ensuring the safety of people in their workplace. So that movement led to the formation of a legislative commission, a special legislative commission, to investigate factory conditions throughout the state of New York. The person in charge of that commission was Senator Robert F. Wagner, and his vice chair was Al Smith. So Wagner and Smith, who were friends, Wagner was a German immigrant, uh, came here at the age of nine, and by the age of 31, he was uh, president of the state senate. Uh, these two you know, future <laughs> political Hall of Famers uh, come together in 1913 to begin an a very serious investigation of factory conditions around the state. They, they are brought by people like Francis Perkins to factories in Auburn, and, and in cities around, uh, you know, every region of the state. And these are two, Wagner and Smith are two guys from working class backgrounds in Manhattan. You would assume that they had seen it all. They hadn't seen it all, right? They, they were shocked by the conditions of industrial America. This all conjures up images of cramped, dusty, dark factory floors filled with exhausted workers and machines humming away. Right. And those harsh realities push Smith and his fellow progressives into action. As a result, the Factory Investigations Commission, which they led, then proposed sweeping reforms, uh, not just in fire prevention, which was what they were supposed to be looking into, really, as a result of the fire, right? But they also begin to propose things like the beginnings of a minimum wage, uh, workers comp a better workers' compensation system. There was something already in place. In other words, they took this tragedy as an opportunity to not just make sure that factories have sprinklers, but to ensure the uh, betterment of of the American worker, and that's that's why we are still talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire all of these years later, because it wasn't just about the fire. It was about the conditions in industrial America in 1911. And the Factory Investigations Commission in the beginning was thought to be uh, less than serious because there were two Tammany people in charge. But over the course of a two- or three-year investigation, uh, that commission changes the reputation of Tammany Hall, uh, puts Tammany on the right side of history as a supporter of these kinds of reforms that private capital didn't want. Uh, but also, we're seeing now progressive change in New York State, all as a result of that catastrophic fire.
This is a counterintuitive alliance, right, between uh, social reform women and machine men. And it was rocky, and I won't get into all the details of this evolution. Both sides needed to evolve to come to a sort of middle ground. But they had common denominator, and that was a desire to ameliorate the suffering of the urban working classes. Beyond legislation to provide a government safety net and protections for the working class, Another way Al Smith personified the progressive movement was his reliance on and respect for women in politics. Remember that it wasn't until 1917 that women in New York had even earned the right to vote. It's extraordinary how many uh, powerful women in New York, or women who became powerful, were uh, attracted to Al Smith's political life. Frances Perkins is, is probably the first one, and she's lobbying for what we would call good government legislation. And she's, she's in the, on the floor of the, of the assembly, and she notes that there's all these other assembly men, and they were all men back then, sort of eh, standing around and probably smoking, because <laughs> you could do it back then. Uh, but there was one guy at his desk working away assiduously, and she turns to her colleague, a fellow lobbyist, and says, well, who's that? And the guy responds, uh, well, that's Al Smith. He's reading the bills that were introduced yesterday. <laughs> Nobody does that. <laughs> and maybe that's still true. Uh, and he, uh, he then turns to Perkins and says, what a shame, he's a Tammany man. But there's something connects with Perkins. She had never met Al Smith. She's asked to be introduced to him, and they have a conversation, and there's a connection. And later on in that same session, Perkins uh, asks Smith about uh, legislation she was supporting for a 54-hour work bill for women and children. And Smith basically said, look, it's not going to pass. Ask for a public hearing, but it's not going to pass. You know, the, the uh, owners of businesses are not in favor of it, but basically gives her advice on how to get this thing passed eventually. And she's just, her breath is taken away. Like, this guy's not lying to me. <laughs> He's telling me the truth. And that was the basis. She, she, later on, after Al Smith died, and when Perkins was writing her own life story, she said, Al Smith never lied to me, always told me the truth. And uh, that really meant a lot. A quick aside here about this woman named Frances Perkins. She was truly a trailblazer. In 1933, she became the U.S. Secretary of Labor. The first woman appointed to the president's cabinet. And she held the position until 1945. Twelve years in the cabinet, from the Great Depression to World War II. That's extraordinary. By comparison, five different labor secretaries served during President Obama's eight years in office. During her time in the cabinet, Perkins oversaw the rollout and expansion of New Deal programs like Social Security, unemployment insurance, child labor laws, and the federal minimum wage. Wow, such a legacy. So there was another woman who helped propel Al Smith's career in New York state politics. Bell Moskowitz was a, another civic reformer, good government type social reformer who saw in Al Smith somebody who could get things done. I mean, Smith once said of Bell Moskowitz, she had the greatest brain of anyone I ever met. Not any woman I ever met, anyone I had ever met, right? She, again, was more of a civic reformer type, a good government type, but she also 
was a really good political tactician and strategist. These women were flexing their political muscles, and they were hugely influential to Al Smith's career. Yes, and with these and other trusted advisors by his side, and a rising profile as a reformer due to events like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, Al Smith was elected governor of New York for the first time in 1918. Once Al Smith was elected governor in 1918, his agenda reflected the agenda of the social welfare progressives that so had informed his point of view for how to fix American industrial and urban life. By 1928, he would be lauded by Francis Perkins as, and I'm quoting here, the first politician who has built his political career on the practical expression in legislation and in government of this passion for social justice. At a time when New York's governors served two-year terms, Al Smith was elected governor of New York three more times, 1922, 1924, and 1926. He lost in 1920 during a nationwide Republican wave. And to put it simply, the man went to work. Labor protections were expanded dramatically in the Al Smith decade. The apogee was, of course, the 48-hour law for women in 1927, but Smith also championed unemployment insurance expansion and improved workmen's compensation system and increased death benefits for widows of industrial accidents. In part due to his own lack of education, Smith understood the value of public education for improving the lives of all New Yorkers, especially rural New Yorkers who really didn't have much access uh, when he came into office. And so to uh, recruit more teachers, there was a teacher shortage in New York City, so they improved salaries for teachers. They promoted and achieved equal pay for women teachers during the Al Smith decade. Rural school consolidation, which was controversial, but I think looking back successful. All of it financed through increased taxation. And he boasted about that. He would say on the campaign trail, when they talk about the big tax or the big spender up in Albany, remember this. When I came into office in 1918, uh, we spent $9 million a year on education. In 1927, we're spending $82.5 million on education. That's what those taxes are about. He could make this very clear to the people. Campaigning on and vehemently defending increased taxes and more government spending, totally unimaginable for a politician to pull off today. And there was public health, where the Smith administration pressed for state grants for maternal and infant welfare, increased child welfare services, inoculations against diseases, visiting nurse services, on and on it goes. Construction of dozens of state charitable hospital facilities. And they didn't get everything he wanted, of course. He wanted universal uh, health insurance program for workers in New York State. Um, and that was, just like every other universal insurance program in American history, it was attacked as Bolshevik and it went down in flames. Wait, universal health care? This debate was going on back in the 1920s? Right, almost 100 years ago. And don't let me shock you here, but the conversation hasn't changed much. Smith tirelessly advocated state development of hydroelectricity rather than by private developers. That didn't happen in the Smith years, but he laid the groundwork for later developments. And there was conservation of lands in the Adirondacks and the Catskills. He thwarted an amendment to the forever wild provision that would have opened up vast swaths of the North Country to hydroelectric damming by private uh, entrepreneurs. 
He wasn't able to get everything he wanted, um, but that was largely because Republicans controlled at least one chamber of the state legislature the entire Al Smith decade. Uh, but nevertheless, much of this platform was achieved. That is an incredibly expansive agenda involving many of the issues still being debated across the country today. How was Smith able to address all of that as governor of New York State? Al Smith possessed a rare combination of political savvy, public likability, and sheer determination. Often this was done uh, through Smith's political genius. He would wear down the opposite. He kept getting reelected. That helped. Um, or he could circumvent miserly uh, legislators through bond initiatives. Now, you can only do one at a time under the New York State Constitution. So in 1923, they asked the people for and received a bond for hospitals. And then in 24, it was for parks. And then in 1925, this is pretty uh, audacious. They said, Let's stop fiddling around. Let's get a 10-year, $100 million bond without further reference to the people so we can build government buildings in Albany and roads and grade crossings and parks and beaches and hospitals. Uh, and that was successful as well, so now he didn't have to go panhandling every election year. He also was successful because at times he was able to make bipartisan alliances. His famous and successful push for for administrative reform was largely achieved by reaching out to noted progressive Republicans in the Empire State, foremost among them Charles Evans Hughes, the former governor. In our current political climate, this type of bipartisan diplomacy, sadly, often appears to be a vestige from the past. And he was successful by taking his ideas directly to the people. He made social welfare questions and New York participation in the federal Shepherd Towner program central to his 1922 comeback campaign. He made his controversial public school consolidation program and his parks program central to his 24 re-election. He made his executive reorganization part of every single campaign. And in each case, the people of the state tended to rally to the governor's banner. Indeed, his political style is just as important. He was able to succeed broadly because not only was he personally popular, but he also was very effective at communicating a very sophisticated, at times arcane, progressive agenda to the people in relatable, understandable, human terms. And that's how you actually succeed in a democracy. You have to act, it's well and good to have good ideas, but he was able to get them across to the people rather than being theoretical or elitist, often self-righteously elitist, as many progressives were at the time, the reform program that Smith put forth was transformed by its sponsor into a people's initiative. And he always made an affirmative case for government intervention, for social welfare, for the government actually to spend money from time to time. You can't overemphasize how transformative this idea was at the time. Given the world that Alfred E. Smith grew up in, that had little or no social contract between the government and the governed. Okay, so in the middle of his decade as New York governor, Smith puts his progressive record in the Empire State to the test nationally. He runs for president. In 1924, he attempted to pivot to the national stage at the Democratic National Convention held at Madison Square Garden. So he had home court advantage, and Tammany packed the arena with... New Yorkers, and they taunted the Southerners, and they taunted William Jennings Bryan. You could barely hear William Jennings Bryan when he was speaking. It is here, 
inside Madison Square Garden were Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a fixture of New York Democratic politics and a delegate to the convention, gives Smith his famous moniker. The Happy Warrior! The connection of Smith and FDR on the national stage is a bit of an oddity. Yes, they were both New Yorkers and Democrats, but outside of that, they were completely different people. Right. Here's a quick rundown. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, born in the Hudson Valley community of Hyde Park in 1882. He is wealthy and well-connected, unlike Smith, who is a poor kid from the city. And with his cousin Theodore Roosevelt in the White House during the first decade of the 1900s, Franklin is elected to the New York State Senate in 1910. He only serves one term and then becomes Assistant Secretary of the Navy. A position also held by Theodore Roosevelt. Exactly. In the early 1920s, FDR fell ill and lost the use of his legs. Amazingly, he willed himself to walk with the help of braces, a cane, and often the steadying arm of his son. But somehow, in June 1924, FDR walks to the podium at Madison Square Garden during the National Democratic Convention and introduces Al Smith. They were trying to claim the Democratic Party away from Southern domination. They failed. Uh, they wanted to nominate Al Smith for president. They failed. Fellow delegates, you have been far too good to me. Much better to me than I deserve. And I may, but all the same, I want to say to you that this is, I hope, the last time that I shall address the Democratic Convention until 1928. Oh. <laughs> Tonight I am here to make a very brief and very simple statement on behalf of Governor Smith. for whom I speak now leads the poll in this convention. We have advocated his nomination as the representative of great democratic principles. But the future of the Democratic Party rises far above the success of any candidate. After nearly 100 ballots, it is quite apparent to him and to me that the forces in this convention behind Governor Smith, the leader in the race, and Mr. McAdoo, a close second, cannot be amalgamated. For the sake of the party, therefore, Governor Smith authorizes me to say that immediately upon the withdrawal by Mr. McAdoo of his name, Governor Smith will withdraw his name also from the consideration of the They wanted to denounce the Ku Klux Klan by name in the Democratic platform, and that failed by a single vote out cast. And so you might look at this as 
a bad moment for Al Smith, but really 1924 was a good year for him. He was re-elected governor despite a national Republican landslide, including in New York. And he and his people, his admirers, had a vision. And it was increasingly a vision that was both New York and national. Now what you have to understand, first of all, is that 1924, that happened in the middle of the Al Smith decade. He's now a national figure. He's seen as a front runner for the 1928 presidential uh, nomination by the Democrats, uh, but he's still governor of New York. He continued his ambitious program in the Empire State. His victories, for example, in New York for expanded school funding and expanded parks program and government reorganization and the 48-hour work week for women, all of these came after Madison Square Garden in 1924. So people are following his career. They're following the New York decade. People around the country know what Al Smith is about. Bringing his progressive record to attention on the national stage invited stiff opposition to Smith's policies and what people, both supporters and opponents, thought he represented. In 1924, the Ku Klux Klan was probably uh, the largest delegation, if you will, at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, they had infiltrated at least a dozen state uh, delegations. Uh, they were adamant that Al Smith uh, could, would not be nominated for president because he was Catholic, because he uh, was a wet. Of course, prohibition was the big cultural issue back then. And, and it wasn't just about drink. It was about immigrants were associated with drinking. Cities were associated with drinking. So, so it was weighted with all of that. Uh, it was a time when uh, Catholics and Jews... Uh, in urban America were coming of age in terms of power. Uh, that was a threat to uh, a group of people who identified America as a Protestant country. Today we hear on, from certain sectors of the right wing that America is a Christian country. A hundred years ago they wouldn't have said a Christian country, they would have said a Protestant country because the differences uh, uh, between Catholics and Protestants were... Uh, rather profound. I mean, they weren't medieval, but they were, they were profound in the United States back then. Uh, today, we're more ecumenical. So Catholicism was regarded as a threat to American liberty. Uh, immigrants, Catholics and Jews, were regarded as a threat to American traditions, to, American, to Americanism itself. Uh, who were they loyal to? Who, where was their loyalty, right? Was it to uh, Rome? Catholics, right? Was it to the Pope or to, you know, their country? You know, we, we don't know. The discourse uh, was, was filled with uh, hatred uh, for Smith and people like him, and certainly for people like Bill Moskowitz as well. Despite this bigotry, thousands turned out for Smith's speeches, which is where he most effectively delivered his message. Smith was very good at communicating his plans at the human level. The how does this affect me school of oratory. Exactly. And as Robert Childs points out, the Democratic nominee's message was finally being heard beyond the Empire State. I've relived the 1928 election dozens of times by just reading through the newspapers in city after city after city, sort of like Groundhog Day after a while. But you get these grassroots voices. And you hear from Joseph F. Nolan of Westfield, New Jersey, an Irish-American first-time voter who told the Newark Evening News that Smith's gubernatorial resume was, I'm quoting Hill, 
ample proof of his ability. If that record is indicative of what is to be expected of him in the event of his election, the United States is destined for one of the most distinguished administrations in its history. But there was one that really struck me that I quote in the book and that I'll quote here. This came from a Polish-American high school girl from Springfield, Massachusetts. She was so proud of the speech she had given on Governor Smith's behalf at her high school debate on who should be the next president of the United States. And so she sent Al Smith a copy. Her name was Katherine Kofsky. And she sent Al Smith a copy of her remarks. And this is what she said. His strongest opponent has recognized his achievement in the total reorganization of the state government, in the business-like management of state finance. On the enactment of a legislative program, he has been able to protect the man, woman, and child engaged in industry. He has improved the public health, and he has attained the finest standard of public service. This interest in humanity could only be attained with his leadership. The governor has proved during his eight years as governor of New York his desire and his power to make the people as interested in the government as he is himself. Governor Smith senses the needs of the people because he's been through hardships himself. Between him and the people is that bond which makes them trust him with their loyalty and their love. During the 1920s, and especially during the 1928 campaign, Smith became synonymous with the song Sidewalks of New York. But when Election Day arrived, American voters rejected the first Roman Catholic to secure a major party's presidential nomination. Al Smith lost. Al Smith's urban roots and anti-prohibition stance did win over the major U.S. cities, but it wasn't enough to tip the scales, with many Americans experiencing relative prosperity during a string of Republican presidencies. The Roaring Twenties. Voters sent the GOP's nominee Herbert Hoover to the White House. Even losing his own home state of New York, Smith would only garner 87 electoral votes to Hoover's 444. The popular vote was 58% for Hoover, and 41% for Smith. Smith, and it really did cost him a lot of votes on the Northern Plains in North Dakota, uh, and uh, as well as uh, in the formerly solid South. Uh, his rejection of 100% Americanism, his denunciations of the Klan, his opposition to the Volstead Act as it stood, these things did get hit attention of urban ethnic voters, not just his fellow Catholics, but also growing numbers of Jewish voters and African-American voters and other marginalized groups. So if Smith was so trounced in the 1928 presidential election, 
How is his candidacy relevant to the progressive era, and why are we still talking about him today? History rarely happens in a straight line. Despite his loss, Smith set the stage nationally for a fundamental change in the role the federal government plays in people's lives. The heart of Smith's presidential aspirations was this sort of idiomatic progressivism that spoke to working class Americans in particular, that grew out of his years as governor of the Empire State. His campaign was a nationalization of the specific type of progressivism he had created in New York. And that's important to recognize because urban ethnic workers voted for Smith, not just because of his cultural symbol, but also because of his ideas. Um, and what that means is four years before the FDR campaign and the New Deal, there are people in pockets of this country who are talking about uh, social reforms and labor protections and so forth as serious political ideas that become a working class American ideology uh, for generations. So you could argue that Smith's ideas and his record in New York State, coupled with the fact that he took those nationwide, helped pave the way for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's rise to power. Right. Smith's failed presidential bid opens the New York State governorship for FDR. With the blessing and support of Al Smith. He's governor at the height of the, or the depths of the Depression. He's elected in 1928. At a certain point, you know, the stereotype is true. President Hoover is pretty much paralyzed by this catastrophic Depression. What to do? the uh, number of unemployed are growing with every month. And, and Roosevelt, again, prodded by Francis Perkins, decides that New York will undergo, uh, undertake uh, some ameliorative, uh, amelioration of its own, uh, starts a jobs program, starts a public works program. You can see the beginnings of the New Deal, uh, the WPA, uh, in, in the way that uh, Roosevelt responded to the Depression. To the point that by 19, by the time he wins re-election in 1930, uh, he's sort of regarded as, uh, you know, a presidential candidate in waiting, and as the uh, the leader of the nation's governors uh, in terms of uh, his uh, reaction to uh, to the depression. So I think that is his greatest achievement to be able to say, uh, in the face of federal paralysis that, well, we in New York are going to do what we can, and we are going to intervene in ways that the federal government may not like or may not approve of, but uh, and for which there's no template. Uh, but we will begin you know, public works projects. We're going to try to put people to work uh, absent any uh, federal help. So I think his, his comprehension, which wasn't immediate, I mean, when the stock market crashed, his first reaction was, oh, this is just, this will pass. But he realized, uh, again, perhaps before others, that they, no, it was not going to pass. Smith's loss in 1928, combined with FDR taking over the Happy Warriors post, creates a rift between the two leading New York progressives. And it turns ugly. So Smith quickly realizes that he's not, in fact, going to be the shadow governor to the point where he resents Roosevelt for not, you know, advising him, for, for not calling him for advice. In fact, at one point he tell, tells a mutual friend, you know, that guy hasn't called me for any advice, uh, you know, in years. So there's tension there. What Roosevelt did as governor of New York in response to the Great Depression 
very much builds on what Smith did leading the Empire State before him. Which made FDR the Democratic frontrunner for president in 1932. Smith decides in February of 1932 that he too is going to run for president. But he's not going to campaign. He, he says, if the convention will have me, that's great, uh, but I'm not going to campaign. Uh, and then at the convention in 32 in Chicago, Smith actively seeks to thwart uh, Roosevelt's nomination. Uh, it becomes clear at a certain point that he's not going to win it, because these are back in the days of con contested conventions. Uh, one ballot, two ballots, three ballots go by, and there's nothing because the, the rules of the party were that you needed two-thirds of, of the delegates. Roosevelt is falling short, falling short. Smith is trying to make sure that he thwarts Roosevelt. And sadly and tragically, I suppose, Roosevelt's people do a deal with uh, Smith's worst enemy in the world, William Randolph Hearst, who controlled the California and Texas delegations. And the upshot is John Garner of Texas gets the vice presidency, Roosevelt gets the nomination, and Smith is shattered, right? He just, he just can't believe he basically was screwed. And the architects of that deal were two people who used to work with Smith, uh, Ed Flynn, who was the boss of the Bronx, and Jim Farley, uh, who later uh, becomes, uh, both of them actually become chairs of the Democratic National Committee under Roosevelt. So that makes him bitter, right? Roosevelt's done a deal with his worst enemy, and he's gotten the nomination. And today, in our boasted modern civilization, we are facing just exactly the same problem, just exactly the same conflict between two schools of philosophy that they faced in the earliest days of America, and indeed the earliest days of the world. One of them, one of these old philosophies, is the philosophy of those who would let things alone, and the other is the philosophy that strives for something new, something that the human race has never attained yet, but something that I believe the human race can attain and will attain, social justice through social action. When the polls closed on November 8, 1932, it was an absolute landslide in favor of Roosevelt. The opposite of what happened to Al Smith in 1928. I am glad of this opportunity to extend my deep appreciation to the electorate of this country which gave me yesterday such a great vote of confidence. It is a vote that had more than mere party significance. It transcended party lines and became a national expression of liberal thought. It means, I am sure, that the masses of the people of the nation firmly believe that there is great and actual possibility in an orderly recovery through a well-conceived and actively directed plan of action. Such a plan has been presented to you, and you have expressed approval of it. This, my friends, is most reassuring to me. It shows that there is in this country unbounded confidence in the future of sound agriculture and of honorable industry. This clear mandate shall not be forgotten. And I pledge you this, and I invite your help in the happy task of restoration. FDR carried 42 states to President Hoover's six, leading to an electoral count of 472 to 59, and Roosevelt's inauguration in 1933. And here it is, the beginning of the greatest drama in American affairs, the creation of a new chief executive. According to time-honored custom, 
The retiring president and the president-elect ride together from the White House with congressional escort down the long and proud-packed Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol, where Roosevelt is to take the oath of office. Enthusiasm is at its height. Never was there such a joyful, jubilant, yelling, applauding inauguration crowd. Roosevelt is the nation's idol here today. Thousands of Americans are here to cheer the birth of a new era in national affairs, a New Deal era, which is supposed to pull the country out of its chaos. The hosts of democracy are here to celebrate the greatest party victory of all time. And now everything is ready for the big moment. Chief Justice Hughes of the United States Supreme Court prepares to administer the oath of office to Franklin D. Roosevelt, making him the 62nd president. You, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of your ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. I, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. I am prepared under my constitutional duty to recommend the measures that a stricken nation in the midst of a stricken world may require. These measures or such other measures as the Congress may build out of its experience and wisdom I shall seek within my constitutional authority to bring to speedy adoption. But in the event that the Congress shall fail to take one of these two clauses, in the event that the national emergency is still critical, I shall not evade the clear course of duty that will then confront me. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis, broad, executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. <laughs> this nation is asking for action and action now. In this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come.
FDR starts to institute the New Deal, programs like the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, and the Public Works Administration. A bitter Al Smith criticizes many of his fellow Democrats' initiatives. Wait, he's angry about this? Everything he used to support, he's now against? More power to you, President Roosevelt. The entire country's behind you, thrilled with hope and patriotism. Smith denounced the New Deal almost as a communistic enterprise. And at one point, Roosevelt turns to Francis Perkins, who remained friendly with Smith, and says, I don't understand. You know, nothing we're doing in the New Deal is different from what Al Smith did in New York. You know, the, historians are divided on this topic. Some people feel that Smith was a uh, very much sort of a, a Jeffersonian Democrat in the sense, not so much about small government, but that he was uh, suspicious of centralized government. You know, I think it was Smith who actually coined the phrase alphabet agencies, which you know, has sort of fallen out of favor, but that was how, you know, the CCC and the WPA and the NRA and all these other organizations, the National Recovery Administration, not the current NRA, uh, were regularly made fun of as the alphabet agencies. The first reference I can see to that as a pejorative was by Al Smith. So it, it's hard to figure. Uh, I, I also think a lot of it comes down to personality. A lot of it comes down to human interaction. Franklin Roosevelt had what Al Smith wanted. And in Al Smith's mind, I think, Roosevelt got where he was because his last name was Roosevelt. Right? And that's why he was elected in 1910 from Dutchess and Columbia and you know, Putnam counties, uh, because he was a Roosevelt and never put in the work that Smith did to become a, a legislator, a great legislator. And I think he was very resentful of, of Roosevelt. And I think it just clouded his judgment. It poisoned his judgment uh, throughout the 1930s. So that by 1935 or so, Smith is completely alienated from Roosevelt, is denouncing the New Deal, and in fact joins the Liberty League, which is an organization of very wealthy business people, mostly Republicans, led by the DuPonts of Delaware, uh, in opposition to the New Deal. In fact, Smith even backs Republican Alf Landon. Alf Landon? Who's that? Yeah, exactly. History books tend to forget Alf Landon. He was the Republican nominee in the 1936 presidential election. FDR beat him worse than he beat Hoover in 32. So what happened to Al Smith? I mean, he abandons Roosevelt, the very man who uttered the moniker Happy Warrior to a national audience. So what, did Smith just have a wholesale change of heart? Historians continue to argue over this. Terry Galway and Robert Childs both say Smith was bitter about his 1928 loss. But no, Smith didn't completely flip on all of his stances. For instance, as one of the most famous wets in America, he welcomed the end of Prohibition in 1933. Of course I am delighted but not surprised by the final repeal of the 18th Amendment. I felt all along that when this matter was properly submitted to the rank and file of our people, they would readily see that it had no place in our Constitution. It would be very difficult, if not impossible, to estimate the benefit that will come to this country from the lesson taught to the coming generations to make it their business to see that no such matter as this is ever again made the subject of federal constitutional law. 
Also, the 1928 defeat may have made Smith more sensitive than other leaders to the dangers of racism and hate. During that campaign and throughout his life, Smith was vilified for his Catholicism and his immigrant and urban identity. He says things like, I see in Hitler the same forces that I saw in 1924. They're wearing brown shirts. The people who opposed me were wearing white hoods. They're the same. They're the same forces. We have to oppose them. Smith was calling out Hitler and the Nazis in the mid-1930s, earlier than most, and gave the following speech in 1943 with the U.S. in the throes of World War II. Anyone who has lived in New York, as I have, knows that unity at home doesn't just happen all by itself. It comes only as the result of experience, understanding, and courage. New Yorkers have had experience. Going back no further than 100 years, we have a record of assimilating more dif different kinds of people, red, white, and black, than any city in the world. But we must not fool ourselves. It hasn't always been easy. For instance, the first big wave of emigration from Ireland began about a hundred years ago. The Irish who came to New York came here to escape poverty and to enjoy the privilege of freedom of worship. They brought with them strong traditions, warm family loyalties, and as lively an imagination as any people on earth. They found prejudices when they came. When they looked for jobs, they would often find signs that read, no Irish need apply. But New York City made room for them, and they made a place for themselves in New York. No sooner had the Irish arrived than hundreds of thousands of people came from the central part of Europe. They spoke strange languages. They practiced many religions. They had known grinding poverty and ruthless oppression. They came to America to find the chance that the countries of their birth never gave them and they ran into even stronger prejudices. Prejudices against the way they talked, the way they dressed, and the way they lived. But these people from Central Europe found a place for themselves, and New York City made room for them. Then came the people from Southern Europe, mostly Latins, gay, willing to work, but driven away from home by the need to make a living. The newer immigrants clashed with the older ones. People whose families had lived in New York a hundred years or more looked down on these interlopers and even took a suspicious attitude towards all foreigners. But in time, they grew to understand them and managed to get along together in harmony. In these times of sudden change, such as we are going through, when a lot of our accustomed ways of living and doing things have gone by the board, we find it easy to blame our troubles on someone else, especially if a few troublemakers deliberately set out to turn neighbor against neighbor. The sacrifices all of us are making to win this war naturally sets up stresses and strains on the home front. We can't expect them not to. And I suppose it's only natural if some thoughtless ones take out some of their feelings on some of their neighbors. But if you stop to think a minute, you'll understand clearly that we cannot afford this dangerous, this fatal, this evil luxury, the luxury of prejudice. It doesn't require an Axis agent to set it in motion. The prejudice is there in a lot of us, all the time. We had forgotten about it until a difficult period like the present one brought it out into the open. For if we let our prejudices get the better of us, all teamwork, all solidarity, all purpose goes out of our lives. We not only hamper, 
perhaps we hurt the war effort. We destroy the very things we are fighting for and destroy them in our own midst. But to recognize our job and to know that it is a hard job is the first step toward victory. Let us take counsel with ourselves and see how empty and foolish these prejudices are. Remember how we built a great city, the greatest in the world today, by rising above prejudice. Let us have unity at home as the forerunner of victory around the world. Smith would give similar speeches supporting FDR's foreign policy, and eventually the two former Democratic New York governors meet at the White House a handful of times in the 1940s. So at least by appearances, they mended fences. These two icons of the progressive era would die within months of each other. Alfred Emanuel Smith on October 4, 1944. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt on April 12, 1945. Shortly after his address on the Yalta Conference, the president went down to his beloved Warm Springs, Georgia home for a much needed rest. There he prepared for the opening of the San Francisco Conference, which was to create, so he hoped, a new world order. And there he penned an address to be delivered on Jefferson Day, the 13th of April. On the afternoon of the 12th, he suffered a massive stroke and died. This last writing summed up much of his life and fate. We hear it now, read by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Jr. Americans are gathered together this evening in communities all over the country to pay tribute to the living memory of Thomas Jefferson, one of the greatest of all Democrats. And I want to make it clear that I am spelling that word Democrats with a small d. I wish I had the power, just for this evening, to be present at all these gatherings. In this historic year, more than ever before, we do well to consider the character of Thomas Jefferson as an American citizen of the world. As Minister to France, then as our first Secretary of State, and as our third President, Jefferson was instrumental in the establishment of the United States as a vital factor in international affairs. Today, this nation, which Jefferson helped so greatly to build, is playing a tremendous part in the battle for the rights of man all over the world. Today, we are part of the vast allied force, a force composed of flesh and blood and steel and spirit which is today destroying the makers of war, the breeders of hate in Europe and in Asia. We as Americans do not choose to deny our responsibility, nor do we intend to abandon our determination that within the lives of our children and our children's children, there will not be a third world war. We seek peace enduring peace. More than an end to war, we want an end to the beginnings of all wars. Yes, an end to this brutal, inhuman, and thoroughly impractical method of settling the differences between governments. The once powerful, malignant Nazi state is crumbling. The Japanese warlords are receiving in their homeland the retribution for which they asked when they attacked Pearl Harbor. 
but the mere conquest of our enemies is not enough. We must go on to do all in our power to conquer the doubts and the fears, the ignorance and the greed which made this horror possible. Thomas Jefferson, himself a distinguished scientist, once spoke of the brotherly spirit of science, which unites into one family all its votaries of whatever grade and however widely dispersed throughout the different quarters of the globe. Today, science has brought all the different quarters of the globe so close together that it is impossible to isolate them from one another. Today, we are faced with the preeminent fact that if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples, of all kinds, to live together and work together in the same world at peace. Let me assure you that my hand is the steadier for the work that is to be done, that I move more firmly into the task, knowing that you, millions and millions of you, are joined with me in the resolve to make this work endure. The work, my friends, is peace, more than an end of this war, an end to the beginning of all wars, yes, an end forever to this impractical, unrealistic settlement of the differences between governments by the mass killing of peoples. Today, as we move against the terrible scourge of war, as we go forward toward the greatest contribution that any generation of human beings can make in this world, the contribution of lasting peace, I ask you to keep up your faith. I measure the sound, solid achievement that can be made at this time by the straight edge of your own confidence and your own resolve. And to you and to all Americans who dedicate themselves with us to the making of an abiding peace, I say, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. Let us move forward with strong and active faith. So what is the legacy of the progressive era of Al Smith and Franklin Delano Roosevelt? Well, we see it in the continued existence of programs like Social Security, government-controlled hydropower for the public, and the conservation of state and national parks. But we also see it in the minimum wage, worker rights, public and worker safety, and in concepts still up for discussion like single-payer health care. Wow, so much of what comprised that era is still with us today, still debated and contested. The impact of these two giant progressives from the Empire State is also evident through the annual Al Smith Charity Dinner in New York City and the referrals to FDR by today's political leaders, including the current governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. FDR was a strong, powerful personality. He was confident. He was action-oriented. He was a champion for the common men and women, as he liked to say. He felt the pulse of the people. When they were hurting, he demanded that the government respond to ease their pain, and he wanted it done today. His theory of, quote, bold, persistent experimentation highlighted his approach. Try to make a difference. If you fail at first, try again. 
the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. FDR was not to be constrained by tradition. It ran counter to his natural confidence and his defiant personality, which refused to succumb to the naysayers, the elites, or personal or political paralysis. And FDR, New York, and the nation are the better for it. There are many lessons from FDR that we can and should apply today. His fundamental faith in democracy, his belief that big problems require big solutions, and his ability to make those changes happen, to make the government work, to actually make change. I recently won the Democratic my Party because FDR understood that you cannot spell progressive without progress. You can't be a politician who speaks and raises people's hopes and then accomplishes nothing. His, success, his national success was not born from pontification or zealotry or hyperbole or symbolism or celebrity or showmanship. FDR was focused on making a real, tangible difference in the lives of hardworking Americans. And he did it. And he did it. He accomplished it. He made it happen. And the American people knew it. Not because they heard it on a radio or because they saw it on TV, because they lived it in their lives. They saw it on their kitchen table. That's what government is supposed to do. Help me live my life. Make a difference for me and my family. That's what the Democratic Party was all about. Thanks for joining us on the New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York in unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman. Stay tuned to WAMCpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. It is also sponsored by a Humanities New York Action Grant with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Robert Childs and Terry Galway for all of their help. For more information about both of their books, go to this episode page at wamcpodcast.org. Also, thank you to WNYC Archive Collections and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum for some of those great audio recordings you heard throughout the episode. Until next time, Excelsior. <laughs>